about women. I'm Samantha Rare, here with my co-host Elizabeth Frankel, and we are here to talk Liar Liar, Pants on Fire, The Handmaiden, Notes on a Scandal, and Mean Girls. Okay, let's get going. (laughs) Weird episode. This is a weird topic. I'm so ready. I'm I'm really ready. Uh, Three great movies. Why did we pick this topic, Sam? Yeah, I feel like when you think about women as liars and the themes that are in these three movies of secrets and gossip and manipulation, like those are all really bad stereotypes of women. Mm -hmm. So what is it that makes these movies feminist? I read in an interview an actor saying that playing evil roles feels very natural. It makes sense to them because because it is such a significant part of the human condition mm. that it, they lean into it in a way that makes sense. Leaning into your evil tendencies really makes sense as an actor. And it makes sense as an audience member too. I think there's something really, really universal about the evil that's explored in these movies in a way that people don't want to talk about. Exposing women for being as potentially evil as men is a feminist act, I think. I think it's like cathartic and fun to yeah. watch evil characters. Totally. We talk all the time about, you know, what makes a good story. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest things for me is flawed characters. Yeah. Women have just as much of a right to character flaws as men do. You think about one of the most famous characters of all time, Iago from Othello. If I was an actor, I would love to play Iago. It's so rich. There's so much there. When you think about Iago and someone like Walter White from Breaking Bad, who everyone loves as being an evil villain, there's a lot of evil women throughout movies and literature, but there aren't a lot that are evil and human, who are not two-dimensional, like femme fatales, who are there to bring down the male character. These movies are about real women who are exceptionally written and who are evil. That's exciting to me. It's so funny you mentioned Shakespeare because that's exactly what I was thinking, especially watching Notes on a Scandal. Mm. There's a particular scene of her when she's just buried her cat. Yeah. And she's got dirt on her face and she's got her sleeves rolled up. She's smoking a cigarette. She's looking at this guy across the table while she's trying to craft how to perfectly manipulate him into exposing the secret of her enemy. I was just thinking like, this is Shakespeare. Yeah. She's Richard III right now. I'm so into it. And I, (laughs) how many times I've like never seen that before. Yeah, totally. I think Ryan Gosling said about Lars and the Real Girl, which is one of my favorite movies ever. I think he said that he wished it was a play so that other actors could have the opportunity to get inside this character. Mm. That's how I feel about all three of these movies. Like Mean Girls is a musical now, which is so exciting. But I want The Handmaiden and Notes on a Scandal to become really famous plays so that women actors can covet these roles and like aspire to play in The Handmaiden or play in Notes on a Scandal. Uh Or we just need more stories like this. Fair enough. (laughs) This episode to me is all about The Handmaiden. (laughs) It's about all three to me. I think if I were to boil it down, the entire podcast would be just an excuse to talk about The Handmaiden. Amen. I will I will back that up too. I think The Handmaiden, just like The Miracle Worker, I think those are the only two movies in the podcast that I feel this way about. 
you really just need to watch them. Yeah. Even though you and I love talking about movies and we have a way of like exploring them, we don't have the faculties to really inform you how good The Handmaiden is. You just need to sit down and watch it. I think especially like there are some listeners who I know listen to our discussions before they watch the movies. Mm. I would suggest not doing that for The Handmaiden Mm. because it's imperative for your viewing experience of this movie to not know what is going on. Absolutely. It's so much fun to be deeply, deeply confused by this movie. And shocked and surprised. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to bring up, that this, maybe more than any other movie we've talked about, please go pause this podcast and go watch the movie and then come back to us. Yes. So now you're back. You just watched (laughs) The Handmaiden. How was it? Did you like it? (laughs) We're going to talk about it now. I, I really don't even know where to start because there's so much to it. Let's just take the first act. Is that a good place to start? At first, I want to introduce the movie. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> I know, no, no. We got to like, you're you're totally right. We're I'm, excited. We're so excited. <laughs> um, okay. Real, real quick. <laughs> the Handmaiden was written and directed by Park Chan-wook, co-written by Chung Seo-kyung, based on the novel Fingersmith by Sarah Waters, and it stars Kim Min-hee as Hideko and Kim Tae-ri as Suki. When this movie came out... Not that long ago. Right. I had seen trailers for it, and I was very intrigued. <laughs> I didn't want to get my hopes up, though. I was just... I, I just had a feeling. I had a feeling <laughs> that I was going to like this movie. <laughs> and I went to see it. Like and in theaters? Yes. Oh my god. It had sort of like a limited release. Yeah. I saw it, like, three times in one week. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Such a nutball. Only since then have I had the same experience with Call Me By Your Name. (laughs) But, yeah, that's a unique one for me. (laughs) I was so just, like, shaken by this movie. (laughs) I had never seen anything quite like it. There's no other movie in the whole world that's like The Handmaiden. No. It's the intersection of so many things. The aesthetic, the plot twists every five minutes, the sexuality, the political themes, the the queerness. There is so much happening at once. It's dramatic. It's mysterious. It's funny. It's so funny. It's sexy. It just like blows my mind. And it's hard to watch because there's so much happening in the plot that you have to watch it a few times to really get how intricate this spider web of a plot is. Yeah. Ah! It's like the holy grail of movies for me. <laughs> we do eventually need to talk about like the movie and yeah. not just say that we like it. We do need to say why we like it. What I look for particularly in movies is theatricality. So theatrical. This movie is so It's an opera. Unapologetically theatrical. Yeah, it's a giant opera. Yeah, I think that to me is what makes a movie entertaining. Mm -hmm. Say what you will, I think some movie critics are, like, (laughs) anti-theatricality. You know, everyone's looking for, like, hyper-realism, which is super boring to me. (laughs) Yeah, this movie goes for it for the entertainment value, and I think that is a huge strength of the movie. Totally. I feel like people constantly describe certain movies as roller coasters. It was a roller coaster of a movie. Which is, like, fine. It just means it had a lot of twists and turns. And, like, 
I know people say that a lot, but this movie truly feels like a roller coaster in that you're going super fast. The wind is blowing in your face. You're going up and down for what seems like a really long time. It genuinely feels like the experience of riding a roller coaster, like in an amusement park. Meanwhile, it's like the most beautiful thing to look at I've ever seen. The music is the most beautiful music I've ever heard. <laughs> the They're, costumes. Yeah, everything. Certain shots of this movie just look like paintings to me. Yeah, Vince Gilligan says about Breaking Bad that he wanted people to be able to pause any shot in any episode of Breaking Bad and have it be like a beautiful Ansel Adams photograph. Yeah. That's what this movie feels like. It feels like a beautiful painting every time you pause it. There's one shot that I just like wrote down in my notes while I was watching of Hidako hanging from the tree in her orange kimono. And I literally just wrote down like, this is so beautiful, I want to (laughs) vomit. That's how I feel watching this movie. (laughs) So I had said we should start with Act 1. I actually think we should start with the source material. Great. Sarah Waters is a Welsh novelist, contemporary, she's alive today, who writes Victorian Gothic novels that include themes of queerness. To sort of reinsert those themes of queerness that have been erased by Gothic novels written at the time. Mm -hmm. Fingersmith was a novel she wrote that took place in England that followed this exact plot. Park Jan-wook read this novel and set it in Japan-occupied Korea in the 30s. Mm -hmm. So it's the plot of Fingersmith in a completely different setting. But what's so exciting about the setting is that there's English aesthetic influenced on Japan, and then there's Japanese aesthetic influenced on Korea. So the whole movie is this beautiful aesthetic triangle between English aesthetic, Korean aesthetic, and Japanese aesthetic. Mm -hmm. The costumes constantly go back and forth between those three different styles. It's so funny because Downton Abbey is set in the exact same era, Mm. but in England. And I caught so much crossover. The house looked like designed specifically after the house in Downton Abbey. (laughs) And there are costumes that Hidako wears that I swear to God came right out of Lady Mary's closet. (laughs) That's so funny. I am so obsessed with the tone that this movie starts out with. First of all, we just need to clarify that there are, I would say, 20 different stories within this one movie. (laughs) So the first story, the first narrative we're introduced to, you see this young poor woman leave her village and be sent off. It's raining. She's in a carriage. It's the same imagery of those Victorian Gothic novels that we all like read in high school. So as you start the movie, you are completely fooled into thinking this is some sort of ode to Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. Yeah. You think that's sort of as simple as it's going to be. Right. It's just like, oh, it's a Jane Eyre narrative set in Korea. (laughs) And you're such a fool for thinking that because that's only the plot for like 15 minutes out of a two and a half hour movie. So then we learn the secret plot of the movie or what we think is the secret plot of the movie. (laughs) That Suki is a con artist. Yes, they're all criminals. (laughs) Suki has teamed up with this guy who calls himself The Count. Right, who's another con artist. Exactly. And he has a plan to defraud this Japanese heiress to seduce her and elope with her and then put her in a madhouse and run away with her money. (laughs) And he needs a young woman to act as her handmaiden in order to have an insider to better convince Hidako to run away with him. So that's what we know of the plot. It's so satisfying that you just described this very detailed, thorough 
storyline right. that could very well be its own movie. Exactly. That's a third of the movie, y'all. And of course, I'm watching and I'm so clever and I'm like, <laughs> okay, so I get the point of the movie. The oh, twist, they're going to fall in love. The twist is that they're going to fall in love. The twist is that they're gay. Like, great, love. Love a gay romance. <laughs> That's like the story. And they're going to they're gonna run away together. They're going to trick the Count and somehow they're going to escape and live happily ever after. That is exactly what the movie wants you to think. I wasn't even clever enough to go that far. I just wanted to know if Hitika was going to end up in the madhouse. Right. Like, I was just thinking that far ahead. I couldn't even possibly think further than that. And what is so fucking brave about Park Chan-wook's approach to telling that story Mm -hmm. is he makes it seem so cheesy. And (laughs) it's like scene after scene is just totally overacted. Hidako wakes up in the middle of the night and she's screaming and having a nightmare. Which is straight out of like a Bronte novel. Right, but it's also like so hyperbolic (laughs) and they're running around screaming. That moment was funny when Hidako is screaming and then Suki goes, ah! And she screams after her. It's so silly. (laughs) And even moments when Hidako says, I think I know what the count meant. Your face. Every night, I think of your face. And I'm like rolling my eyes. I'm like, this is so fucking cheesy. (laughs) I think at that point, the first time I saw it, I was like, okay, this is the movie. I I don't know if this is actually what I thought it was going to be. I don't think it's as good as I thought it was going to be. It's pretty cheesy. Wow. Right? Yeah. Well, I I was super invested in all of that. (laughs) I thought it was great. Well, because I love Jane Eyre and I was thinking, wow, what if Jane Eyre was reframed as a gay con artist? That sounds fucking awesome. Like, I thought that alone was what this movie subverted. I agree with all of that, except that it felt so overacted to me. It felt like the acting was bad. Sure. Which, in actuality, is not true. It's entirely the opposite. It's totally on purpose. It's all on purpose because these women are acting. (laughs) They're acting for each other. So wait, before we get into that, continue... What is the end of Act 1? Oh my god. What happens? <laughs> oh my god, it's so good. So, we get to the climax. It's an hour into the movie. I've just spent an hour watching this cheesy romance. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, the movie's about to end, right? I knew that the movie was two and a half hours. And I'm yeah. looking at the meter on my... I'm looking at the meter on my television and I see that there's like an hour and a half left and I am so confused because like, I'm like, what could possibly happen? What else could there be? This is the movie. It's about to be over. Right. How foolish were we? <laughs> the tables turn. They get to the madhouse <laughs> and all of a sudden... <laughs> It switches, and Hidako betrays Suki, and we find out that Hidako was in on it all along, (laughs) and the Count and Hidako were teamed up to betray Suki. (laughs) I remember literally yelling out loud in my living room. I was like, whoa, oh my god, what just happened? I like texted you in all caps, and I was like, what's going on? And it closes in on Hidako's little smirk, and there's narration, and Suki is like, What you don't know is that Hidako had always been dot 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 (laughs) a rotten bitch! (laughs) And I literally scream! (laughs) It's like, Yes! (laughs) This is the story that I've been waiting for! It's like it's 
like this like <laughs> orgasmic like climax of storytelling. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> It's so good. It's so clever. So that's, let's say, the first intermission, right? That's where the audience is left. We don't know what the fuck is going to happen now. Now we enter Act 2, which takes place from Hitoko's perspective. And you realize that everything you've just watched in the first hour was a complete lie. And Hitoko wasn't anything like you thought she was. It becomes far more human and sort of less melodramatic, less cheesy the way you were talking about. You realize that this girl has been abused and oppressed by her sadistic, perverted uncle her entire life. And she's actually very sexually aware because she's been exposed to porn her entire life. Her uncle makes her do these pornographic reading presentations for his rich friends. She's basically a sex slave. And because of that has been desensitized to sex, she knows everything about the world. She is incredibly smart. She knows all about human nature. She's not the ingenue that you thought she was in act one. The Count, who's the con man you think is in cahoots with Suki in the first act, directly approaches her and says, I was planning to defraud you. I was planning to marry you and take your money and put you in a madhouse. But I see that's probably not going to work because you're too clever. And you probably can't be seduced because you've been so traumatized by the sexual abuse in your life. So instead, why don't we team up and throw someone else in a madhouse so you can run off with me? Mm -hmm. What can I say? We also go into Hitoko's childhood. We see that her aunt, who was being abused the exact same way by the uncle, killed herself. Or did she? Right. She was murdered by the uncle. So suddenly Hitoko is a real human character now. There's nothing sort of flamboyant or theatrical about it. This is a real human having real problems. And because of that, we're able to recontextualize the romance. And what before was maybe a cheesy, melodramatic romance in Act 1 now becomes this deep romantic epic. Yeah. And Suki really saves her. Yeah. Hitoko was numb. She was dead inside. Yeah. She had essentially nothing to live for. And this con man offering her a way to get out of her uncle's house was sort of the best she could hope for. Until the shift that we thought was Suki's shift in act one, which is, oh no, my plot is going to go off the rails because I'm actually falling in love. The same thing happens to Hitoko. Mm -hmm. She realizes that her plot to defraud this handmaiden, who she knows is a con artist, and go free is actually going off the rails too because she herself is also falling in love. The gorgeous irony of this movie is that this man thought that by putting two women together, he would still be able to have power over them. He (laughs) never anticipated for a second that they would find kinship in each other. I had that exact question during the last viewing that you think in the first act that he hires Suki because she's this clever con artist. And then in the second act, you realize that he knows he's fooling her and he actually just needs to throw a nobody into the madhouse on behalf of Hitoko. So now I'm wondering, why would you hire a really clever con artist to just be your pawn? I think it's because he just underestimates women, period. Even if they're a clever con artist, they're still not nearly as clever as he is. Yeah. And that's his downfall. Yeah. There are obviously so many things to talk about in this movie that we could like just talk about the aesthetic or just talk about the costumes or just talk about the story. 
I want to talk about a few moments when the aesthetic intersects with the story. One moment that is so striking to me is the pornographic readings where she's in like traditional Japanese garb and all of these men who are in English suits are sitting watching her all like getting off to her reading this pornography. I thought of something you said in our horror episode about there being power in numbers that Me Too was only possible when a group of women normalized each other's experiences. I had that same thought during these porn readings. There are so many men there and they're all getting off. They're completely normalizing each other's perversions by being there together. I immediately thought, why would any of them think that this is wrong? There's a whole group of them here. They're all doing this. They're all like exploiting this woman together. That was very powerful for me that why would any of these men question their behavior when there's a group of them? And that's why it was so striking to me, the look on Hideko's face when Suki gives her the power to destroy those books. Oh my god. Oh my god, so emotional. She's been so brainwashed by her uncle her entire life that she, her impulse is to not want to hurt the books. She puts value in them. She's been taught that these are the most valuable thing in the world. And she needs Suki there. She needs companionship with other women in order to learn that those books don't have that power, that they are actually worthless. It was so beautiful, the look on Hidako's face of curiosity at Suki's rage. Suki is enraged in this moment. She is full of fire and anger and hatred towards these men that have ruined her lover's life. Seeing Suki tear up these books, Hidako looks really confused. And it's because you need other people to validate your own trauma if you don't know you've been traumatized. She needed someone to give her permission to be angry. No one had ever given her permission to be angry before. But I also realized we just jumped to act three with this conversation. We got to go back. We just like (laughs) leapt an hour into the movie. We got to go back to act two. So (laughs) what happens in act two? Hideko is a lying, conniving lady, which I just want to say one of my favorite shots. She's wearing a green dress at the dinner table once, and there are green buttons down her back, like on her spine, which makes her look like a lizard. Hmm. There are so many moments like that. The uncle having a black tongue. There are so many beautiful aesthetic details that immediately show you who these characters are. Mm -hmm. His black tongue was such a great way to be like, oh, this is the worst person in the world. (laughs) (laughs) I get it. But again, he is such a just plain old creepy kooky villain in act one. Right. It's not until act two that we realize the extent of his abuse. Yeah, the depths of his evil. Yeah. Another fabulous shot where you are linking the aesthetic to the story when Hideko as a young child and her aunt are reading from the pornography and they sort of have like a moment of giggling, they have a moment of bonding. Oh my God. He grabs their faces with the palms of his hands. In those leather gloves. Yeah, and what does that look like? It looks like an octopus. It looks like how an octopus would grab people. Mm. The friggin' octopus, man. What's that about? (laughs) Porn is such a huge character in this movie. Yeah. And the octopus comes from classical Japanese erotica. Mm. Why do you think the octopus? It's got like eight phalluses. (laughs) It has eight things with which to penetrate a woman. Yeah. While simultaneously constraining her like ropes. And like holding her in place. Yeah. (laughs) 
it's quite an image. Yeah. Oof. I mean, talk about this movie being like a theatrical opera. The symbol of the octopus, that he keeps an octopus in his basement, Mm -hmm. is so loud and so satisfying and interesting. But speaking of porn. Yeah, because porn is a big, it's the the fifth character, basically. Let's talk about the sex scene slash scenes. Oh my god. Buckle in, folks. (laughs) I just want to also comment on the fact, I feel like in every movie we've discussed that has like a pretty graphic sex scene, we always feel the need to talk about it. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I just want to like acknowledge that, that when, when filmmakers feel like brave enough to showcase a woman's sexuality in their film, it always tends to have a lot of things to unpack. Yeah. Let's just start by saying this film was criticized for its sex scenes. Yeah. There have been a number of movies made with a lesbian romance at the center. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are made by men. Yeah. And the common occurrence is for a male director to take the love scene between two women and hyper-eroticize it. Amplify it. Yeah, make it a fantasy for men. Yeah. Rather than an intimate experience between the two characters. We don't ever like to get too critical on this podcast because I don't think it's helpful for the world. But I will just say the clearest example I can think of that is Blue is the Warmest Color. Yeah. Which kind of felt like it undermined the entire film. And on top of that, the actresses in that movie have discussed the making of that movie in which they were incredibly uncomfortable and it was not a safe working environment. That's A, the biggest thing. And B, I think it's reflected in watching the movie. Absolutely. But enough negativity. Let's explore why this movie may or may not also do that. I think it's there a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I also think that the performativity of the sex scene is entirely intentional. And kind of brilliant, I think. The sex scene reads to me like a porno. In a way that the characters are conscious of. Hidako has been raised on pornography. Her relationship with sex is through the lens of pornography. This whole act that they put on, Hidako's like shy, innocent girl act of Mm -hmm. like, I don't know what I'm doing, will you teach me? And Suki is the experienced one. It's all, like, those are such classic porn tropes. They're role-playing. Exactly. Because those are the roles that they have been taught. So not only is Hidako performing in the role of a porn star because that's what she knows, Mm -hmm. she's also performing for Suki. She is actively seducing Suki as part of her plot. Yeah. In this performance as a submissive waif. Right. She's playing a submissive wave. She isn't actually one. And so even the physicality of the sex scene, I think, is part of that performance. Yeah, absolutely. They are role-playing a love scene. Why I think the scene is so powerful is, in addition to everything you're saying, Mm -hmm. it is actually an expression of affection between these two women in a way that they have never experienced in their lives. They've both probably never had sex before. And they do feel love for this other person. So they're playing two roles. They have to do the performative thing in their respective plots to conspire against each other. Meanwhile, they're actually having like unironic sex because they love each other. Yeah. That's really cool. And I think the music really communicates that. Yeah. Because while this sort of crazy, a little hilarious love scene is happening... This gorgeous romantic music is playing. Yeah. It's such a weird juxtaposition to have this sweeping love theme happening while we're looking at a vagina POV shot (laughs) (laughs) of Suki with her tongue sticking out of her mouth. It's so silly. Spellbindingly beautiful. (laughs) 
It's, oh my god, there's so, it's like sensory overload. (laughs) This whole movie is sensory overload for me. I also love when you can take a scene that is in most movies that is sort of obligatory for the plot in certain ways, like a sex scene, and you can actually make it further the plot and further the character development. Mm -hmm. I don't know too many sex scenes that do that. I feel like the movie would have less character development if you didn't have the sex scene. That's like never true. That never happens. Mm -hmm. That's cool. All right. So the twist at the end of act two, Hidako realizes that she's in love with Suki. She is not into this plan anymore. She hates her life and she tries to kill herself. Suki finally confesses her love and her part in the plot and tries to save Hidako from killing herself. They both reveal their plots to each other and decide to team up against the Count. That's the end of Act 2. You totally skipped over, though, the amazing image of her holding on to Hidako's <laughs> legs and then the wide shot of her letting go. One of the funniest moments in the entire movie. Hidako tells Suki that the Count has been fooling her the entire time. Suki lets go of Hidako's body, which is tied up by a noose. And Suki starts yelling, oh, that motherfucker, that bastard. And Hidako starts choking because she's hanging from a tree. Suki grabs her and goes, oh, sorry, miss. Uh. Okay, so end of act two, both women have finally confessed their own respective plots to each other. They decide to team up, second intermission. And now we got another like 45 minutes of the movie left. Right. Well, we end back at the madhouse where we left Suki. Right. And now we know that Suki is totally aware of what's going on. She wasn't shocked by this plot twist at all. Right. She was in on it. And actually, the cuckold in that moment is the Count. He's the only one who doesn't know what's going on, and he thinks he has all the power. Uh I actually clocked this during the movie of who knows what, when. The only person who actually knows everything the entire time is Hitoko. Mm -hmm. Suki doesn't know during act one. And the Count doesn't know until Act 3. Right. And the uncle never Mm. finds out anything. (laughs) The uncle is just completely oblivious to the entire film. (laughs) He's too busy reading his porn with his octopus. And being a man. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. All right, jump into Act 3. What's happening? So Act 3 is from the Count's perspective. It opens like that. It opens like that. And then halfway through Act 3, we really forget about the Count and we focus on the two girls. Right. So in Act 3, Suki escapes from the madhouse with the help of her con artist family. Which I love. I love that they had absolutely no loyalty to the Count. Yes. They were a real family with Suki. As soon as Suki tells them, change a plan. I'm actually teaming up with Hitiko. We're turning on the Count. Her con artist family is like, we're down. How can we help? Yeah. So fun. Meanwhile, Hitiko has to dispose of the Count. (laughs) So she uses the poison that he gave her as a wedding present. Oh, God. And that should tell you how ridiculous and fabulous this movie is that the wedding present is him being like, in case you ever want to kill yourself, here's some poison. Right. (laughs) That's so funny. And she uses it against him. Yeah. She seduces him even after he's already been aware for most of the movie that it would be impossible for her to be attracted to him. Right. She's repulsed by him until this moment. And it never crosses his mind that she could be tricking him. Right. (laughs) Because he wants to get laid. Exactly. That's as far as he can think ahead. So anyway, she knocks him out and then tells her uncle where he is, that he's quote unquote kidnapped her and took her away from the uncle. Uncle's henchman comes, 
brings him back. So now the two women are off on their own, and the uncle is holding the Count captive. It's like such a happy ending. (laughs) And the way that they all trade identities is so crazy, because... (laughs) It begins with the plot that Hidako and the Count are going to run away with Suki's identity. Mm -hmm. Hidako is going to have Suki's passport with her face on it. When they end up leaving, Suki ends up using her own passport. She ends up using her own identity for the first time in the movie. Mm. She was introduced to us as Okju. Right. Then her name got changed to Tamako. Oh, yeah. And then she was put into the madhouse as Hidako. Right. Finally, she gets to be herself. And Hidako steals the Count's identity. Dresses as a man. Which praise. You you were into. (laughs) Talk about rocking some menswear. (laughs) She looked damn good in that hat. That little mustache. I wish she had cut her hair for real, though. I was mad when she took off the wig. (laughs) Okay. Hidako drugs the Count with the drugs that he gave her. Mm -hmm. Just as she cons him with the con that he gave her, and then she escapes (laughs) with his identity. (laughs) So the lying part of it becomes their power. They're able to take the lies that they were given by the patriarchy and then use them against the patriarchy. (sighs) So we think we have this happy ending with the two girls. Meanwhile, the rage of the patriarchy lives on and we go back to the uncle who has realized that the count has played a part in Hidako escaping him. They have all of this rage, they have all of this failure and disappointment, and they have no women around to channel all of that rage into. They have no women around to abuse right now. So they abuse each other. Yeah, isn't that just like when you take away their toys, all boys can do is start beating up each other. In a film that was mostly shocking and loud through its sexuality and through its plot devices, suddenly the film is like actually graphic and violent for the first time. And that really caught me off guard. Although it's still brilliant. I I just was a little shocked by it. Suddenly there's like blood and mutilation and torture. And the film is now like kind of torture porn. And it was very satisfying to me that like Hidako and Suki were able to get their revenge. You know, they destroyed the books. Yeah. Running away is an act of revenge but the violence that is done at the end of the movie that's all on the men and they just do that to each other and there's no dignity to it there's dignity to the way that Suki and Hidako avenge their abuse right there's no dignity to cutting someone's finger off like that's not clever that's not cunning that's not interesting you don't have to be you don't have to be like a clever thinker to cut someone's finger off it just sort of shows that these men are kind of buffoons. It was such a pathetic sight, (laughs) especially to top it off with them recounting. Oh my God. Yeah. The, the wedding night. Right. The uncle is actively abusing and mutilating the count. Meanwhile, he's asking him for details of what it was like to have sex with Hidako. And they didn't even have sex. He's just so desperate for that like illusion. To me, it was entirely in conversation with the porn culture of the film. totally. That the uncle had this absolutely absurd fantasy of the first time with Hidako. Yeah. That he would have any kind of magical experience with her after abusing her her entire life, after 
desensitizing her to sex Mm -hmm. after knowing full well how she feels about him. (laughs) That he would still maintain this ridiculous magical fantasy. It's so fucking pathetic. (laughs) These men die suffocating on the false memory of having sex with Hidako. So we've reached the end of the movie. You think that the end is going to be Hidako and Suki on this beautiful ship off to freedom, off to liberation. And then the film gives you an encore. (laughs) The rock stars, you think they're going to bow and leave the stage. And then they come back out again and they say, all right, one more. We'll do one more encore. They're on the ship, on the way to freedom, and they have one more intense sexual encounter. There's plenty of male gaze in it. Yeah. But I think it is a really nice idea of them reclaiming the narrative that Hidako had actually used in one of her pornographic readings. Mm. It was an excerpt from that. Right. And applying it to themselves for their own pleasure. Yeah. And we have this beautiful chorus of the bells ringing, (laughs) the two of them giggling and sighing, and the ocean waves rolling (laughs) as we pan up to the moon. (laughs) What a glorious glorious movie. Sarah Waters, the novelist of the original novel, has this quote that she was talking about The Handmaiden. She said, though ironically the film is a story told by a man, it's still very faithful to the idea that the women are appropriating a very male pornographic tradition to find their own way of exploring their desires. Right. And I feel like that sort of encapsulates the final scene, that they're using sex toys and sort of images and moves and gestures that they've learned from porn, but they're actually using it to have this very private moment just for the two of them on this ship that doesn't involve any of the other male characters. It's just for them and for each other. We, I don't think we've talked enough about these women being like liars and manipulators. Yeah, I think we got so wrapped up in how good this movie is, we sort of forgot the theme of the episode. <laughs> We just wanted to talk about The Handmaiden forever. Right. These women have been trained to perform. Mm. The uncle has trained Hidako to perform in her role as his reader. Mm -hmm. The count has trained Suki to perform in her role as the handmaiden. Both of these women are performing in roles for the pleasure and gain of men Mm. at their own physical and emotional expense. Yeah. What a fucking metaphor for the patriarchy. When you think of all of the things that women do to perform, to make men more comfortable with the existence of women. Someone's angry. (laughs) I think the role of lying and manipulating is really interesting in this movie, and it's sort of separate from Notes on a Scandal and Mean Girls because... These two women lie out of survival. Yes. They lie to just keep their heads above water. Not even to prosper, but just not to be complete victims or to die or to be raped. They lie to maintain an iota of their dignity. And that's a really great place to start, I think, with this episode. Because the next two movies really devolve and do not explore lying from a place of survival, but as being a sociopath (laughs) and, and enjoying lying, enjoying hurting people. I don't really think at their core, Hidako and Suki enjoy 
hurting each other. No. I don't think they enjoy hurting anyone. They really just want to have a normal, simple life being gay and being free. In Notes on a Scandal and on Mean Girls, I think lying feels a little bit more delicious. They sort of, mm. sort of taste good. In fact, I think one of the most powerful scenes in the movie is when Hidako slaps Suki mm. and basically tries to convince her to open up and stop lying to her. I think that what they discover is that their power mm-hmm. will come from being honest with each other. Yeah, totally. Another thing that separates the role of lying in The Handmaiden from the other two movies is this is the only movie we talk about in this episode where the movie itself lies to yes. the audience. Notes on a scandal, you pretty much know what's happening the whole time. Mean Girls, you know what's happening the whole time. There's no dramatic irony with the audience. We know what's going on. In The Handmaiden, we are the last to know everything. Yeah. <laughs> the filmmaker doesn't give a fuck about keeping us in the loop, which is so satisfying. And I think that's like a classic tool for movies that have a twist ending. You know, I feel like all of M. Night Shyamalan's movies (laughs) actively lie to the audience, you know, keep you out of certain secrets in order to get the satisfying surprise later. Yeah. There's an interesting coincidence between these three movies. All three movies use voiceover narration. And I think that has a lot to do with cluing the audience in on the secrets. Because these movies are crafted around secrets between the characters, we have to enter so deeply into the characters' perspectives. Their motivations that are very different from the way they are presenting themselves. Exactly. That we need that voiceover narration in order to make sense of it. All three of the movies, I think, are at their funniest when what they're verbalizing to the people around them is in direct contradiction to what the voiceover narration is saying. All three of the movies have scenes where that is directly happening, where they're saying one thing and then thinking another. And we, as the audience, are the only people that know that. Juicy stuff. And I think that's an excellent segue into Notes on a Scandal. So now we're going to jump 70 years in the future (laughs) to the mid-2000s to the culture that Fingersmith was originally set in. Like this is an English scandal the way that Fingersmith originally was. So we're sort of going back to the source. Hmm. Interesting. Notes on a Scandal is a crazy movie. Yeah. (laughs) It's crazy. Another movie based on a book. By a lady. All three of these movies are directed by men, but based on original source material by women. Very interesting. The screenplay for Handmaiden was co-written by a man and a woman. Notes on a Scandal, the screenplay was a man, and then Mean Girls was a woman, obviously. Mm -hmm. Notes on a Scandal, let's jump in. Notes on a Scandal came out in 2006. It was directed by Richard Eyre with a screenplay by Patrick Marber based on the novel by Zoe Heller. It stars Dame Judi Dench as Barbara (laughs) and Kate Blanchett as Sheba. Before we jump into Notes on a Scandal, you and I are both really big fans of a play that was turned into a movie also by Patrick Marber called Closer. Yeah. Closer is a good way to jump into this movie because we sort of know that Patrick Marber is really good at fucked up sexual psychological mayhem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Closer is great if you want to check out Closer for a weird, sexy night. Yeah. Not sure if it's feminine. Probably not, but it's a really good movie. (laughs) This movie was nominated for four Academy Awards. Judi Dench for Best Actress. I'm sorry, you established for us to say Dame Judi Dench. Yes, The Dame for Best Actress. Kate Blanchett for Best Supporting Actress. Patrick Marber for Best Adapted Screenplay. And... 
Philip Glass <gasps> for best original score. A, I didn't realize I got all those Oscar nominations. That's amazing. B, oh my God, Philip Glass's score for this movie. Yeah, holy shit. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into it in time, but that's like one of my favorite things about this mm, movie. In time. I don't get it. I feel like all of Philip Glass's music is like the soundtrack to clocks spinning. Totally. You know, it's all about, it's all cyclical. Yeah. Sam, do you know a little film called Koyana Scotty? <laughs> this was a film <laughs> that my high school English teacher made us watch. <laughs> Yes, this terrifying theme song that Philip Glass wrote. We watched this in English class. It was two hours long. I really don't know what was happening, but I remember being riveted. Like, I remember being super invested and watching it, just thinking, what the fuck is going on? And Philip Glass's music is so, like, legendary, and it just seeps into your soul and stays with you. And I was mesmerized by Koyana Scotzi, similarly to the way I was mesmerized by the music in this movie. Mm -hmm. Philip Glass... You weird motherfucker. Yeah. I think that our preference for weird, flawed, fucked up women <gasps> is very clear in this episode and particularly in this movie. You mentioned this a bit earlier, but Barbara is the most brilliant villain yeah. I've ever seen. She's she, a proper Shakespearean villain. She should be up there. Like one of the great evil characters. Mm. Again, going back to what we had talked about earlier, women being evil is not unheard of in movies. Women have been femme fatales forever. Like women have always been cunning and conniving. It's the intersection of them being evil and human. That's why I love Barbara, because she's a real person that you love and empathize with and unfortunately relate to. And she's evil. And you can reconcile those two things while watching it. It's really cool. I also think that we have so few movies about older women. Yeah. Like none on this podcast. We've like yeah. really tried. I mean, coincidentally, our only other movie so far featuring an older woman was The Devil Wears Prada, and she's also a villain in that movie. Mm. Um, but I feel like most movies featuring older women, they tend to be, you know, wise and kind and gentle, or it's like a feel-good about, like, reclaiming their youth, mm -hmm. or they're used as a narrative device so that we can flash back to, like, their actual life, which will be portrayed by younger actors. Totally. But she is, she is a proper, proper lead of this movie we even have like a sexy bathtub shot of her <laughs> yeah that was incredibly satisfying to me <laughs> but we're drawn into this movie through the narration they establish in the opening shots that this older lonely woman who doesn't seem to have a lot of friends who doesn't have a lot of family takes deep important solace in keeping journals yes she writes down everything. We are reading her journal. There's that beautiful panning shot of, of all of her, her years and years of journals. Yeah. Because we know that we are her journal, we are taking on the role of her journal, we know that A, this narrative is going to be completely biased and it's going to be totally from Barbara's perspective, which mm -hmm. means we're not going to get the full story, which is very interesting. And B... We are her closest confidant. She has no one else that she can talk to the way that she's going to be able to talk to us. So we also know that she's not going to lie to us. Mm, yeah, totally. 
This movie very clearly illustrates that she is the villain from the very first moment. Mm. Her narration over the first scene, she is straight up evil. The music is ominous. Yeah. The way that she talks about her students, she's racist. Yeah. She calls her students pubescent proles, the future plumbers, shop assistants, and terrorists. <laughs> That's right, I forgot about that. That's such a good line. She's obviously a terrible teacher. She hates teaching. She hates her students. She has no intention of improving the history department, which she's the head of, probably because of, like, some bureaucratic reason. Mm. The other teachers can't stand her. She's a total snob. She thinks she's superior to everyone. We get all of this in the first five minutes of the movie. Mm. Which then gives the movie the remaining two hours to smooth all of that evil out. Out right. And give nuance and give humanity and give patience for it. We establish her as being evil and then we constantly subvert that by insisting to the audience that she's a human being. Right. Really cool stuff. This woman seems to be pretty cozy in her hatred of the world. She's sort of wrapped up in this cozy cocoon of hating people mm -hmm. and hating herself. And then the inciting incident happens where she meets this young, pretty, kind teacher who's new to her school, played mm -hmm. by Kate Blanchett. And suddenly this door is opened in Barbara's life that says, maybe I could actually have a friend. Maybe someone could be kind to me. Maybe I could be kind to someone and we could have a connection. The reason this movie is so beautiful and you care about the two of them so deeply is her motivation, as fucked up as she ends up being as a character, her motivation is very pure and relatable and beautiful. She wants someone who will give her an excuse not to be so hateful. I think where this movie is strongest was when I deeply related to the character. <laughs> because they're both so awful, it really kind of like shook me to my core whenever I related to them. Sure. <laughs> the way that she celebrates a conquest of, you know, making a new friend. Yeah, as if she's achieved something. She's been like, yeah, fuck you. I have a friend now. That was very relatable to me. Oh, I was like deeply like upset that she that she saw having a friend as like yeah as a conquest yeah i could mm. relate to that because you know the opposite is loneliness as someone with social anxiety who has a lot of trouble making new friends mm. every time i'm able to have a you know a positive social experience <laughs> it's a personal triumph I think the difference is it's a personal triumph between you and yourself. It seemed like when Barbara had the achievement of a new friend, she was somehow saying fuck you to the world, to everyone who she felt judged by. Mm. It seemed like an external avenging of anyone who had doubted her, anyone who hadn't been her friend. Right. It wasn't about her own achievement with herself. It was still about her hatred of the world. Sure. And that was really, really sad. Meanwhile, we now have this second protagonist, mm. Sheba who is a whole heap of a mess too, in her own way, separate from Barbara. And Barbara sees those flaws and those weaknesses and aims to exploit them in order to keep Sheba in her spider's web, in her trap of being her friend. She manipulates Sheba constantly throughout the movie to keep her indebted to her, to stay her friend. It's really scary. 
I think that's where the evilness comes in. It's not the fact that she loves Sheba. It's the fact that she blackmails Sheba. Into being her friend. Right. It's not the motivation, it's the means. Yeah. I mean, we've already sort of said this, but I'm just really, really taken with the juxtaposition between Barbara's very dangerous, terrifying, cunning skills to like hurt people and lie and manipulate with her profound loneliness and self-loathing. Right. And the idea that she is so alone and empty in her life that all she can fill it with is darkness. She doesn't know how to fill it up with light. And I think that sort of a, a surface reading of this movie would interpret her gayness mm -hmm. being the villain. Right. But I think the movie makes it quite clear that the fact that she's an asshole makes her a villain. Right. Honestly, it's her self-loathing. It's the fact that she probably hates being gay mm. that has turned her into this hateful person. In fact, there's a beautiful scene between her and her sister. Yeah. Who really tries hard to connect with her. Yeah. And wants her to open up, wants her to come out of the closet. Yeah. Asks if she has someone special in her life. Yeah. And because Barbara is such a fucking snob who probably looks down on her sister for being a good person. <laughs> She's totally unable to accept that moment of generosity. May I contest that for a sure. second, just with a theory that <laughs> we've mentioned The Good Place a lot on this podcast. We just really like The Good Place. There was a flashback at one point where Eleanor is in high school and a bunch of various students come up to her trying to befriend her. And she makes this like big speech to everyone saying, I don't want to be your friend. Don't talk to me. <laughs> it's so funny. But it's really clear throughout The Good Place that Eleanor is not a bad person. She's not an asshole. She's just been so conditioned to think that people who are nice to her are going to leave her mm. and that she can't trust people being good. So I think it's more that. I don't think she's a snob when it comes to her sister. I think she is so terrified of letting anybody in because she's probably been deeply hurt in the past in a way that isn't in the movie, you know? I don't think people come out of the womb naturally manipulative and evil the way that Barbara is in this movie. I think you're conditioned to become that way. Hmm. I mean, maybe there are some natural sociopaths, but I think a lot of people learn how to be like that. I feel like there's a really juicy prequel somewhere about how Barbara came to be <laughs> this evil, you know? Yeah. And this movie's so good that we sort of don't need it, but I think it's there. I don't think Barbara is just naturally like this. Sure. So we've talked a lot about how Barbara manipulates, lies, really judges everyone in the movie. Meanwhile, Sheba has some demons. Right. What's going on with Sheba? <laughs> So how soon into the movie do we discover the subplot? About 25 minutes. Right. About 25 minutes into the movie, we discover that Sheba, the lovely ingenue teacher. Who's friendly to everyone and who sort of seems perfect. Right. Barbara calls her the bourgeois bohemian. Yeah. She's been having an affair with a student. A 15-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. Some background. This movie came out in 2006 and I saw it right when it came out, so I was... 14. Stephen Connolly is 15. So it was a very interesting moment for me to see it because what he looked like, that was my type. That was who at my age I would have been attracted to. Kate Blanchett is universally gorgeous. Like it doesn't matter what age or sexual identity you have. I feel like everyone's like madly in love with Kate Blanchett. Right. So this attraction felt very obvious to me <laughs> being a 14 year old. Right. Because I was like, well, Stephen Connolly is super hot and it's Kate Blanchett. So like, what's the problem here? <laughs> And now I'm a grown-up. 
I feel obviously very, very differently. I talked to my mom about this movie and she loves it, but she she's repulsed by it. She enjoys how she's repulsed by it, but the idea of having sex with someone who looked like Stephen Connolly, who looked that young and was that boyish, was extremely uncomfortable for my mom. Yeah. And I think that really speaks to the fabulous casting. Yeah. That they cast a kid who, you know, a lot of high schoolers do look older. Maybe they have facial hair. Maybe they look like they could be in college. They cast a kid who looks like a child. Yeah. There's nothing like masculine and virile and grown up about him. Like that's a young boy. He has no facial hair. His cheeks are blushed. He's got freckles. Like he's a kid. The camera certainly makes a meal out of him though. (laughs) Well, because that's how Sheba sees him. Exactly. I think they do a very careful job with how they treat the sexuality of Steven in the Mm -hmm. movie. He actively pursues Sheba. You could say he seduces her, but of course, because she is in the higher status position, it's all her responsibility to say no. And he manipulates her. Talk about manipulation. He lies to her. Mm, About his family. He sees that she romantically romanticizes the idea of him being lower class and Mm. poor and troubled. And he weaves this story about being beaten by his dad and having a sick mother. And he sort of plays into the fantasy that Sheba has about him. Sure. I mean, I, I agree with all of that. And I think it's why it's such a fabulous movie that every character is so detailed. But I just sort of want to reiterate again that no matter how much of a part he might have played initially in their affair, he is still a thousand percent a rape victim. And I'm so fascinated by the irony of Sheba's relationship with her husband, that she was 20 and he was 40. He was her teacher. They had an affair. He left his family and his children. They like make a reference that he has this whole other family And then they get married, they have kids. The movie never questions this, which I find so intentional and gorgeous. Like this narrative of Richard and Sheba is just what happens. And that's totally fine. And Mm -hmm. that's their romantic background. Whereas when it's a young boy and an older woman who's his teacher, then it's this giant scandal. I found that irony very upsetting and powerful and beautiful. Yeah. That he's 15, she's 37. It's essentially the exact same age difference between her and her husband. Right. And what else makes me sad about Steven is he's really not in like the last 30 minutes of the movie. Like once the affair ends, that actor pretty much leaves the movie. And it's sort of Barbara slash the film's way of saying that we're not really supposed to care what happens to this character. It's really about Barbara and Sheba. It's not really about Steven. And I think that plays into the idea that when boys are harassed, it's really not a moment of trauma because he'll be high-fiving his classmates that he hooked up with his teacher. Men aren't given the same platform to acknowledge their own trauma and abuse the way that women are. Right. While watching this, I thought a lot about Josh in Transparent. I don't know if any of you out there have seen Transparent. It's the greatest show in the world. The show has a beautiful arc of one of the lead characters revealing that he had an affair with his babysitter when he was a teenager. And throughout the series, he comes to realize that that was abuse, that he had been raped and he's a rape victim. I just wonder what's going to happen to Steven, you know, while everyone's high-fiving him in the playground now, what are his romantic and sexual relationships going to be like in 10, 20 years when he had this really traumatizing thing happen to him, even if in the moment he was into it and wanted it? It seems like the only character that's really aware, that's really worried for his safety is his mother. 
Yeah. That scene is so powerful. Yeah. God, that actress comes in, she nails her like 30 seconds of the movie yeah. and then leaves again. Yeah. She understood the weight of this event, I think, even more than Stephen did. No one in the movie gives it the weight that it deserves because he's a boy. Yeah, 100%. I also find it so funny. I mean, like, sad and funny mm -hmm. when Sheba finally visits him in his home. Mm -hmm. And she's sort of, like, accosted with the reality <laughs> of his, like, child bedroom. Yeah! And his nice father. Yeah. That it's like totally not the aesthetic that she wanted. Totally. <laughs> this is such a cynical depiction of the liberal, rich, white woman. Great. I think it's totally earned. Yeah. I think there's such truth to it. <laughs> that she totally romanticizes him. She romanticizes this whole moment as a sexy rebellion for herself. Yeah. She doesn't even fit Stephen's narrative into it. Totally. Right. The truth of who he is. I love the scene where they're in the playground at night and he's sitting on the swings and he says, look, I can't help you. I don't know what's going on yeah. with you and your husband and your children, but like, I'm not your solution. I'm not going to save you. He just seems so like young and helpless he's in that moment. Boy. He's a boy. And she finally sees him as like just a person. He's not this magical, cathartic experience for her. He's a kid in a playground. Like when he says like it was just supposed to be a bit of fun. Yeah. And here she is thinking this is, this is like the most important moment of her life. Yeah, this is like the new love of her life. Yeah. So fucked up. And Barbara is aware of this irony as well. My favorite line in the whole movie is Barbara saying, Sheba has no idea what loneliness actually is. Mm -hmm. She thinks she does because she's in like an okay marriage, but she has no idea what longing to be touched really feels like. It was just so heartbreaking that that's really what fuels Barbara's evil is this desperate loneliness that even Sheba has really no idea about because she's in what seems to be a very healthy marriage. And she just has this affair because she's fucking bored. Because she's entitled. Yeah. Which, she literally says that. Yeah. And it made, it like gave me goosebumps as soon as she said, I felt entitled. I was like, oh, bitch, get over yourself. Right. <laughs> but I did love her. I love both of them because they're so well written. Yeah. It's so well crafted. Just like in terms of like the filmmaking, like crafting this kind of drama, the way that he casually clues us into her attention to her cell phone in the first act of the movie. Mm -hmm. Just like a tiny bit more attention to the cell phone would have given away the whole game early on. Right. <laughs> right? And a tiny bit less would have... We wouldn't have noticed. Exactly. Yeah. It was just enough. And something else that's like horrifically ironic about Sheba is she clearly understands the value of finding empowerment and a moment of catharsis through an affair, right? Through exploring her sexuality. And then at the end of the movie, she mocks Barbara for having the same fantasy. Mm -hmm. She says, oh, you want to fuck me, Barbara? Completely undercutting this woman's real pain. Right. Barbara feels the same way about her as she feels about Stephen. And it is so backwards that Sheba mocks her for this. It's like, no wonder Barbara hates herself. This is the response she gets, that the idea of wanting to have sex with another woman is a punchline, is a weapon used against her right. by the woman she loves. And even in that moment, she's so defensive. She keeps calling it a friendship. Yeah. And she says it's an intense friendship. Companions. Right, that she would go to the ends of the earth for someone she admires. Yeah. 
I feel like Sheba is the bigger villain in this mm. movie than Barbara. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, she's a pedophile, so that in itself does it. <laughs> but... Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, talk about manipulation. Like, it's very obvious that Barbara is manipulating Sheba. Mm-hmm. Sheba's manipulation of Barbara is less obvious. Mm-hmm. It's a little more sinister. Okay. As soon as Barbara blackmails Sheba, Sheba does a very quick calculation in her head about how she's going to have to change her behavior towards Barbara in order for her secret to be kept. So... You think she becomes flirtier after that moment? Absolutely. Wow. I mean, flirtier is one way to say it, but she definitely, like from that moment on, their friendship, in finger quotes, is a total pretense on Sheba's part. Mm -hmm. She is milking it for all that it's worth in order to convince Barbara that she shouldn't divulge Sheba's secrets. This goes back to the performativity in The Handmaiden. The scene on the bench where Sheba and Barbara are talking about Jennifer. Right. I was very conflicted in that scene because on one hand, it's exactly what you're talking about, right? That Sheba has given more space for Barbara to be vulnerable, to talk about herself. The first half of the movie, Sheba does all the talking. She talks about her marriage. Their friendship is fairly one-sided. That Barbara listens, Sheba talks. Now, Barbara does the talking. Barbara can really confide in Sheba, and Sheba is there to listen. On one hand, it's because exactly what you're saying, that Sheba needs to keep Barbara in her good graces and make her feel comfortable. But on the other hand, I was really taken by surprise and sort of delighted that Barbara did feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable, actually vulnerable with Sheba. It's kind of the only moment in the whole movie that that happens. She really talks about herself in a way that she's never spoken about herself. I found that really lovely and fucked up. (laughs) That was the confident that she was looking for. Yeah. Sheba provides her with exactly what she wanted. Mm -hmm. In a way, it's because of Barbara's own manipulation. Yeah. But Sheba is not the innocent victim. No. And that's why this movie is so good, because people are victimizing each other while they are also the victim. Like, everyone's a victim and everyone is manipulating each other. Right. It's like a big emotional jigsaw puzzle. I was trying to think why lying is such a, you know, a vicious stereotype of the behavior of women. Mm -hmm. And I think women have to lie because women have more societal rules than men. Men are allowed to be open about their evil. Women have to do it in secret. (laughs) That's funny. Like, Hillary Clinton was criticized for being evil in secret. Meanwhile, Trump was openly, brazenly evil right in front of our faces. It's pretty interesting. The last thing I want to say that we had mentioned in the beginning, I feel like the biggest filmmaking technique this movie uses to heighten the stakes is the fucking music. I am so into this score. Yeah. Even from the very beginning, the strings are going crazy. It feels like music you would use in the climax of a movie. It's really, really heightened. It's really fast. It's really dramatic. And the movie started like two minutes ago. Like you're already thrown into a loop of like, oh shit, people are upset. Like I need to be upset immediately because the music never really takes a break. The music is 
high and intense the whole time, mm-hmm. which also gives you permission to sort of have a sense of humor about the movie, that the movie knows it's ridiculous and knows that these two women are ridiculous and are doing ridiculous things. It gives you an out that we're not aiming for realism. We're aiming for an opera. We're aiming for a melodrama. Right. Which is great. I felt this way about Carrie and I feel this way about this movie too. Despite its darkness, I'm just so entertained watching it. Yeah. It's such a thrill ride. I am genuinely entertained from beginning to end. I mean... I'm pretty much happy watching juicy performances by amazing actors oh gosh, yeah. all the time. So, like, talk about a gold mine in this movie. Yeah, these powerhouses, these two women. Yeah. Bill Nye is amazing. He's so amazing. I mean, he's amazing in every movie. Yeah. He's fabulous. I thought Andrew Simpson was great, who played Stephen Connolly, who's yeah. like the fourth largest part in the movie. Phil Davis, who plays the teacher <gasps> at the school. Yeah, he's awesome. Who I knew from Sherlock and then was in Vera Drake. Like, he's an incredible actor. Everyone is great. Even Lil Juno Temple in her like five minute role as the daughter I think is amazing. Like everyone in this movie is bringing their A game. There's no weak link. Just like in Mean Girls where the cast is like one of the best parts about it. Yeah. Wow. You ready to talk about Mean Girls? (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about the cast for a sec. Let's... (laughs) Let's break it down. Okay. We got Lindsay Lohan. We got Rachel McAdams. We got Amanda Seyfried. We got Lizzie Kaplan. We got Lacey Chabert. We got Tina Fey. We got Amy Poehler. We got Daniel Franzese as Damien. There's not a single performance in this movie that doesn't elevate it. They're all trying to top each other with their comedic performance, and it creates such a good chemistry in the movie. Everyone is good. Yeah. Most of my notes while I was watching this movie, it was just like, wow, she's so amazing. (laughs) Wow. 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 I mean, it's one thing when the script is this strong. It's another thing when the script is this strong. And then you have the comic timing of these actors to deliver the already brilliant lines. Yeah. Just an example. One of the kookiest lines to me is when Janice says she's a scum sucking road horse. She ruined my life. That's already a hysterically funny line and it's ridiculous. But the way Lizzie Kaplan says it, she emphasizes every other word as if it's like a Shakespeare verse. Like the way she says it has such rhythm, it makes it twice as funny. I feel like making that connection to Shakespeare is so perfect. (laughs) There's a reason why it's so quotable. It's because it's every word was so meticulously chosen. Like, think of that line, scum-sucking road whore. Like, Tina Fey sat down at her computer (laughs) and she chose those four words to mesh together into a single insult. Like, think of the kind of, like, classic Shakespeare insults that he just, like, came up with out of thin air. Totally. And now they're, like, part of our vernacular. I have a mug that's Shakespeare insults. It's, like, phrases that he invented. Related to the lines, Tina Fey changed the vernacular of our generation. Yeah. She changed the phrases that we use. This movie is so deeply ingrained in the way that our generation speaks in a way that in a couple of years we may not even be conscious of that it's from Mean Girls. She doesn't even go here. I feel like people say that everywhere, all the time, outside the context of quoting Mean Girls. They just say that. Or, you can't sit with us! (laughs) I'm not a regular mom, I'm a cool mom. Right! People don't even know where that's from anymore. That's what Shakespeare did. Yeah, get in, loser, we're going shopping. It's everywhere! (laughs) We're quoting. 
quoting so many because it's so good. That's something that's also very special about Mean Girls. I think actually of any movie we've had on the podcast, I don't think we've talked about any movie that is this popular. This might yeah. be, this might be our most popular movie we've ever talked about. Mm-hmm. It became an instant classic. Mm-hmm. It's sort of considered one of the best comedies like ever. Yeah. That's cool cuz normally the movies we're finding are like hidden gems where women are the focus. This was a mainstream success that featured women. It's pretty cool. I feel like when it came out it broke a lot of ground in terms of the kind of comedy you could tell with women at the center. Yeah. So, Mean Girls came out in 2004. It was directed by Mark Waters and written by Tina Fey, based on the book Queen Bees and Wannabes by Rosalind Wiseman. And it stars Lindsay Lohan as Katie Heron and Rachel McAdams as Regina George. So good. So, when this movie came out, I saw it along with everyone else, and I don't think I liked it very much Mm. because I remember going to school the next week and the mean girls in my class started calling themselves the plastics. (laughs) Just totally not getting the point of the movie. And I remember thinking that, like, you totally don't get what this movie was about. (laughs) It's making fun of you. And therefore, this is a bad movie. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, I'm not sure. Like, is it the fault of those girls or is it a fault of the movie? Mm. Or is it just sort of emblematic of everything the movie is pointing out? That, you know, we can love to hate the plastics, but we still want to be them. Mm, Sure. I had a very different experience watching this movie when I was a kid because I knew I was never going to be the plastics. I never wanted to be the plastics. It was so far removed from my reality Mm -hmm. and sense of self. I was always a Janice Ian that I could really appreciate how silly the movie was because I sort of didn't think it was in dialogue with any themes in my life. So I could just sort of watch it as this absurd, like door slamming comedy. Sure. I will say though, watching it this time for this episode in context with The Handmaiden and Notes on a Scandal... It was the first time I've been really uncomfortable by this movie. I think it's similar to our witch episode where we start in one culture and then by moving it towards more contemporary younger characters, we see how that culture has been evolved, how it's been inherited and sort of reframed by younger women. The darkness and the evil in the first two movies This is how it's gotten translated down into contemporary high school. And something about that was very disheartening and sad. Mm. And so I sort of had to let go of all of those feelings and remember that this movie is meant to make fun of that evil and mock that evil. And that's okay. We can enjoy that too. And then once I remembered that, I had, you know, the great old time I normally do watching this movie. I think that it is 100% a satire. It's 100% heightened, but it's satirizing real life. Like, like, when this movie came out, it was fairly obvious to me that it was based on my high school. <laughs> You know, I think if you're going through high school and you see the characters in this movie reflected in your own school, and especially the politics of the movie reflected in your own school, I think it could be a pretty cathartic experience to feel, like, seen Hmm. in that way. Sure. I want to start this conversation breaking down how this movie introduces the theme of meanness into the characters. Awesome. It's very funny and very ironic. I've never noticed this before. The meanness is introduced by Janice. 
Janice is the meanest person in this movie for the first 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. We don't really see Regina being mean until like 25 minutes in at the mall and she does that prank phone call. The person who actually teaches Katie how to be mean in the beginning is Janice. Janice is Katie's queen bee for the first third of the movie. Right. It's the transition of Katie learning how to be mean on Janice's terms and then to Regina's terms. That's sort of the dramatic conflict of the movie. And I don't think I ever appreciated before that Janice is as mean as Regina. She's just not as shiny about it. And therefore, it's less exciting to get off on her meanness. Right. Katie's betrayal of Janice isn't that she became a mean girl from being an innocent girl. It's that she changed allegiances. Yeah. She went from being Janice's version of mean to being Regina's version. Right. And Janice even acknowledges herself as a mean girl in that scene when she confronts Katie. She says, at least me and Regina know we're mean. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we come back to this theme over and over in a lot of our movies that teenage girls have a very specific way of grasping their power. Yeah. And that's really the centerpiece of this movie. Mm. And it's almost like the stasis, like the status quo if you're a girl is to be mean. Yeah, it sucks. In order to survive in this high school environment, Katie has to learn how to be mean. Yeah. And like we said with the craft, where you can be susceptible to power, she learns to like it really fast. I made marks when I was watching it that she does her first really mean thing 30 minutes in. It takes 45 minutes for her to be outwardly a bad person. Mm-hmm. It, ta- it, it There's a 15 minute window between when she starts being mean to when she is full blown like a bad guy. It takes 15 minutes. That's really cool. I was even paying special attention to the way that she's seduced by the plastics. Uh-huh. She is under their spell. <laughs> From the first moment she sees them, there's this glint in Lindsay Lohan's eyes as she stares at them across the football field. When they're introduced, there's something about the plastics that is really intriguing to Katie. Yeah, and I want to specify that it is to Katie. The film kind of implies that because Katie doesn't know anything about high school, she's been homeschooled, she's kind of this blank slate, right? She's the everyman. Mm. And she becomes corrupted by the specific world in this movie. And I don't know if that's really true. I feel like there's a lot of girls who would have been in a very new situation, learned that how to survive is to be mean and wouldn't have taken the bait. I think she's a really specifically interesting character because a lot of girls, myself included, a lot of girls wouldn't dumb themselves down in math class just because they had a crush on a boy. A lot of girls wouldn't decide to lie to their new popular friends just to make another girl happy. A lot of the weird shit Katie does seems pretty specific and fucked up. Right. And also, even though she is the everyman, as you say, she's only able to get into the door with Regina because, you know, Janice calls her a regulation hottie. I noticed that more than I've ever noticed that before, that this whole movie tumbles into action because Katie is so pretty. This movie wouldn't have happened if she wasn't as hot as the plastics were. And that was like, Pretty loud and disturbing to me this time. Prettiness is really like a powerful privilege in this movie. Yeah. Along with wealth. Yeah. Their sexuality. There are a number of 
you know, status symbols that Mm -hmm. the plastics carry. So let's get into how they're mean. Because as we said, this movie is dripping in just the most incredible lines. This whole movie is sort of a collection of the most Right. Brilliant zingers, the most brilliant one-liners in any movie. Yeah, like one after another yeah, after another. They just sort of tumble out. And let's try to look for some examples that really pinpoint how they manipulate, how they lie to maintain that power. The example that I was the fondest of, because it's so ridiculous, is when Regina tells the story to Katie about her friendship with Janice. She gives this long speech about how Regina didn't invite Janice to her party because there would be girls there in their bathing suits. It sort of reminded me of how girls used to talk when I was in school, just the absurd logic that because she was gay, which you didn't know for sure, and that there were girls there in their bathing suits that she like couldn't go. Like all of that is so insane. And then she says she came back, her hair was cut off, she was totally weird, and now I guess she's on crack. The only thing of substance that Regina said in that speech was that Janice came back to school with a haircut. Hmm. She takes a very straightforward anecdotal fact and embellishes it to be very dramatic to make Janice sound like a crazy person. Right. And she didn't even have a punchline for the end of her story. She had to steal it from Katie's prompt at the beginning of the scene, which is that Janice was talking about crack. Like Regina pulls from things really fast. She's a great listener. (laughs) She takes things around her and she compiles them into a narrative that makes other people look bad. It's really clever. I feel like that scene was also one of the only private scenes between Katie and Regina. Mm -hmm. So it was a moment of intimacy between them. It was a moment of like, let me tell you a secret so that you feel comfortable around me. Mm. I mean, it's juicy gossip, right? Yeah. It also reminded me a bit of our best friends episode because... From Gina's perspective, Janice was so distraught that Regina stopped spending time with her because she had a boyfriend. That's what you and I spent an entire episode talking about the legitimacy of that feeling. (laughs) And here Janice is not sure why her best friend doesn't want to spend time with her. And Regina is so fucking evil that she completely exploits Janice's sadness and like ruins her life with it. And that's why I think it's... It's more than, you know, like Janice came back with a haircut. I think there's truth in Regina's story, even though it's dramatic. Like, I think Janice really had like a breakdown. Mm. Well, that goes back to what you said earlier about hating the plastics and still wanting to be them. Yeah. It's very clear that Janice hates the plastics, not just because they stand against what she stands for in life. It's because she was rejected by Regina. Yeah. She was in Regina's crowd and then she wasn't and she feels rejected. This is all just vengeance for Regina deciding she didn't want to be friends with Janice anymore. Related to that, maybe it's just because it's 2018 and the language we use is evolving so fast these days, I feel like, which is so exciting. But I was really taken aback by all the like playful homophobia in this movie. The way that the recurring thread through the movie of the plastics calling Janice a dyke and telling that story about the bathing suits. I was like super uncomfortable. And I think that's a good thing. Maybe just times are changing so much that even in the 15 years since Mean Girls has come out, what seemed fairly normal when I was a kid, a narrative like that, now seems fucking insane and like super abusive and horrible. Right. That you think that even Mean Girls nowadays would have this social awareness not to make fun of someone for being gay? Uh, I would like to think so. Maybe I'm maybe I'm too idealistic, but yeah, I would sort of think so. I mean, mm. we, you and I also talked about the fact that when we were kids, people used the word retarded. 
which I don't even feel comfortable saying now. But now people refer to it as the R word. It wasn't the R word when I was a kid. People just used that word all the time. Pretty casually, the way that Regina uses it in this movie, every time she said the R word, I was like immediately distracted and was taken out of the movie and was like, this is a dated movie. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's cool, I guess? No, I mean, it goes back to this movie being satire. Yeah. It was pointing out all of the evils of high school clique culture. But I don't know if that word was associated with evil the way that it is now. Sure. I don't think it was meant to be shocking. Like it was just part of the vernacular. Yeah. It's shocking now in a way that I don't think it was 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. Like, the way it's aged has actually heightened the point of the movie, yeah, which is that these sure. are really evil girls who use evil words. Hmm. If it's, it ages like a fine wine. <laughs> Their evil only gets more evil as the words they use become less appropriate in time. Yeah. That's cool. For sure. That's really cool. I mean, you could apply the same theory to the way that the cliques are talked about. You know, with oh, the yeah. with the nerdy Asians and the cool Asians. These kinds of eating disorders, those kinds of eating yeah. disorders. All of that is so tasteless. And I think it was tasteless in one way 15 years ago, and now it's tasteless in another way. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. It was also so satisfying and hilarious that there's an ongoing joke of the gym teacher having an affair with one of the students, which is the exact plot of Notes on a Scandal that we just spent all this time talking about how dramatic and traumatizing that is. That is the entire plot of that movie. Yeah, and here it's like two lines. (laughs) Isn't it funny that a gym teacher would sleep with this student? This movie's bold. I love how bold this movie Mm -hmm. is. It's always been bold, but now it's bold in a way that we have a little bit more clarity as to all the things that it depicts that are super inappropriate and horrible. Going back to the manipulation as a theme of the movie. Yeah. I think it's so important that Katie is the new girl. Mm Mm-hmm. Because there is this, like, cult of curiosity around the myth of the new girl. Uh Do you remember, like, in middle school and high school, if there Uh was a new kid in school, everyone wanted to be friends with them. (laughs) Like, the new girl was going to change your life. Sure. Right? So funny you say that, because the last time I saw that depicted really beautifully was in the play Schoolgirls, the African Mean Girls play. Oh, Which is a play that has sort of a lot of the same themes as Mean Girls, but it's set in Ghana. And the excitement, the sort of lustful energy around the new girl is so funny in that play. Yeah. Everyone who approaches Katie in her first few days of school wants something from her. Mm. No one is actually interested in being her friend. Janice and Damien want her to spy on the plastics. Mm -hmm. The plastics want her to add to their power. To their hotness. (laughs) Right. Kevin Nippur wants her as an asset to the math team so that they can get jackets because they'll get more funding if they have a girl on the team. (laughs) My heart beats so fast for Kevin Nippur. (laughs) Jason approaches her. Who's Jason? Um, Oh, yes, of course, Jason. He wants to butter her muffin. (laughs) Who could forget Jason? Everyone wants something from her. That's why I think when she goes home, one of the best, best lines in the movie is when her parents say, were people nice to you? And she says, no. And they say, did you make any friends? And she says, yeah. Because those two things are not the same thing in high school. (laughs) 
In the musical, Gretchen Wieners has an amazing song, which is just called What's Wrong With Me? And it's just this like beautiful soliloquy about how she hates herself and she just wants Regina to love her. So someone will love her. And I think that's really true throughout the film and the musical that you have to carve for yourself a corner of love for each other and self-love when the jungle you're in is defined by hatred. Oh my god, yeah. The scene in Regina's bedroom when they go through this routine of criticizing their own bodies. Yeah. These girls who have the reputation of being the most beautiful girls in school. Yeah, perfect. Still have that social expectation to hate their bodies. Yeah. Which is so foreign to Katie because she hasn't grown up in that culture. Yeah. Honestly, I feel like we haven't learned anything from this movie because, like, Instagram culture came after Mean Girls, Mm. which I think is even more guilty of this culture that they're trying to satirize of women having power based on a very artificial construction of themselves. Mm, yeah. And we're not quite through the Instagram phase. Yeah. You know? I agree. I'm not on social media to avoid precisely what you're talking about, but I shouldn't have to be. You know, I shouldn't have to avoid it because I know how toxic it is. It just shouldn't be this toxic. Right. We should use this platform for, like, good. (laughs) (laughs) Not to, like, shame each other. If anything, I feel like since this movie came out, the problem has become a lot worse for teenagers. With social media? With social media, yeah. That girls feel exponentially more pressure to look perfect. Yeah. I think that in the obsession around the hilarious zingers in this movie, Mm -hmm. I think sometimes the real meat of the movie gets lost in the, you know, social commentary around it. I think the musical does that really well Mm. because it's, you know, 30 minutes longer. It's a two hour musical. You have real space for character development and real nuance that because the movie is made up of zingers, there's sort of less space for that in the movie. I think both are great. They just handle the same material in different ways. I think that the message of the movie, you know, it happens really quickly. It happens during her mathlete competition. Right. As she's trying to solve a problem in front of her, she says, in narration, calling someone fat doesn't make you thinner. Calling someone stupid doesn't make you smarter. Ruining Regina's life didn't make me happier. You can only solve the problem in front of you. It's a shame that that's not the quoted line, you know? Totally. I think it's interesting that musicals and movies are such a different medium that different things can be emphasized. That theme or that line basically is like a giant musical number right. in the musical. Oh, sure. And like everyone's like crying in the audience and mm. it's really lovely and they're singing with big smiles on their faces. Like my dad was crying. It's like a really lovely number at the end of the show. It's like the finale. So that's just how different mediums give different access to themes. I think it's a wonderful, like, moral of the story. Yeah. You know? After we've just spent 90 minutes watching, like, the most horrendous people do horrendous things. Yeah, sort of celebrating them for it. You know, laughing with. Well, that's that's an interesting question. Is it laughing with or is it laughing at? I think it depends on the audience. (laughs) I think you and I get something out of this movie that maybe girls in Regina's position don't get out of the movie. Girls in your school who called themselves the plastics probably weren't watching it the way we were. Yeah. (laughs) 
this is super small, but again, just going back to Kevin Napore and the influence that this film had on our lives. Every single person in my high school knew that rap. We all knew it. Yeah. We did it all the time. Everybody. Like, it was ubiquitous. It was like reading Harry Potter. Like, everyone spoke the same language and understood how important this piece of art was. Kevin G. Kevin G. <laughs> because this movie is so clever and genius... I sort of want to end this conversation. Can we just quote our favorite lines? What are your favorite lines? And I'll tell you mine. What are the ones that stay with you? Because some of the lines, they're like earworms. They get in your brain and they stay there forever. I mean, like picking one quote is crazy. (laughs) This whole movie is quotes. Yeah. It's a collection of really, really funny quotes that are strung together into a really clever plot line. I'm obsessed with Gretchen's... We should all just stab Caesar. <laughs> that is not what Rome is about. That whole monologue from Gretchen really touches a piece of my heart. <laughs> when she's talking about her parents got her these really nice white gold hoops for Hanukkah. <laughs> hoops were Regina's thing. Like that, oh, that saga, that really gets me. <laughs> I had a friend in high school. Every time we saw each other in the hallway, we would say to each other the line back and forth, I can't help it if I have a heavy flow and a wide-set vagina. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Which is so funny. (laughs) But I want to ask you, do you think that that line is funny because we're laughing at her? Like, the punchline is that she has a (laughs) wide-set vagina? Maybe. Or is it we're laughing in recognition that someone is finally including a line in a movie about a wide-set vagina? Um... I think, again, it depends on the audience. Totally. My friend and I in high school, we loved the idea that a movie was just commenting on any wide-set vagina. Just a wide-set vagina. And that girl's comic timing, delivering that line, and then staring up at Tim Meadows is so funny. And he goes, yeah, I can't do this. He's great in this movie, too. And, like, super hot. Yeah. Not to objectify Tim Meadows, but, like, his arms for days. (laughs) Oh, classic, though. She doesn't even go here. (laughs) I really think people forget that that's from Mean Girls because it's just such a part of our culture now. Oh, I relate to that girl so much. (laughs) She says, no, I just have a lot of feelings. (laughs) It's like, no, like, I can't, I can't choose one. It's like every line. It's like, say crack again, crack. (laughs) It's like, that's why her hair is so big. It's full of secrets. Every line of this movie. Oh my god, Danny DeVito, I love your work. Yeah. Just like, bravo, Tina Fey. Love your work. (laughs) Keep up the good work. Yeah. What have we now learned about these three movies in conversation with each other? That lying is human. Mm. Evil is human. And so as fucked as it is, there are certain moments when we can celebrate it. I feel like all of these women used evil as a coping mechanism some of them did some of them i think were just fucking evil yeah and that's cool too (laughs) (laughs) yeah men do not have a monopoly on the human condition and lying is a very human thing love this episode had a lot of fun what's next week For our next episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. This will be the big finale of 2018. So we're bringing you something epic. 
The title of our next episode is the I'm So Cold Jack Epic Winter Titanic Spectacular. You guessed it, we're gonna be watching Titanic and it's just too long a movie and there's way too much to talk about, so we're giving it its own episode. And this episode will be out on Christmas Day, December 25th, so cuddle up with your family on the couch this winter and watch Titanic. And if you like what you're hearing, leave us a review. We want to hear from you. Mm-hmm. Happy holiday season. Happy winter. <laughs> or unhappy winter. Man, I am not happy. I love being cold. Ugh. Give me a big blanket, a big sweater, and a boy on me. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Is that too real? <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Feminist Popcorn is produced and hosted by Samantha Rare and Elizabeth Frankel. Our theme music is by Barrett Riggins. Our cover art is by Hannah Perry. Keep up with us on Instagram and Facebook at Feminist Popcorn. Tweet us at official underscore fempop. And email us your voicemails at feministpopcorn at gmail.com. You can find descriptions and links to all of our movies on feministpopcorn.com. And don't forget to subscribe, share, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday. Sam, the movie's starting. Pass the popcorn. Let's talk about the sex scenes. <laughs> Let's try that again.